What a great Sunday, just to celebrate uh, those things, to remember baptism, the, uh, the outward, as Steve's taught us, the outward symbol of the inward reality that has happened uh, as a result of what Jesus has done for us, all right? Well, we are in the book of Revelation. Uh, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the very last book, all the way to the last book in your Bible, all the way on the right, and we're going to be in Revelation chapter 5. We looked last week at a a truth in the scripture from three different places called the rapture. And we talked about why the rapture was such an important pastoral implication uh, for us as Christians, that we look forward to the time when Jesus will return and will save those who are eagerly awaiting him. So that is very good news for us as a church. The very next uh, reality on God's prophetic timetable is the rapture of the church to bring them to heaven to be with him. And that's what we saw in Revelation chapter 4. We saw around the throne were 24 elders representing the glorified, raptured church. Well, today, I know you're waiting to get to the weird stuff in Revelation. I know you are, because I get, I get the questions where people go, hey, can I just ask you a quick question about a really interesting spot in Revelation? And I say, no, you got to wait. I make you wait for it. Uh, so, but we're going to be in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 is an interesting uh, passage. The introduction to the judgments that happen in the book of Revelation are, uh, what's the word, pre, they're the precluded pre, they're before. Revelation 4 and 5 are before those things, and they're there in your Bible for a very important reason. Revelation chapter 4 shows you the worthiness of God. It was John just uh, having sensory overload as he is called into the heavenly court to see the living creatures, the glorified church, the, the one who sits on the throne. And he saw the worthiness of God the Father on the throne. And then you're given Revelation chapter 5, which we're going to look at today. But these are chapters that give you the divine proof of why God the Father and the Lamb have the right to pour out the judgments. So what you see in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 is, is kind of the, the worship of heaven that declares these, uh, this Trinitarian God has the right and the authority and the power and the glory to do what he's about to do. So before you move into judgment, you spend time in Revelation chapter four and chapter five in worship, in acknowledging that God is who he says he is. You with me? So when you get now to Revelation chapter five, Revelation five is about to uh, play the same note and we're about to see that Jesus is who he says he is as a result of what he has done. If you've thought about Jesus and his work from the Gospels through to the book of Jude, uh, you have flashes uh, of the opinions of men about who this person Jesus is. You have the um, the revelation of Christ in, John, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have the explanation of Christ from Romans all the way through Jude. And then you have the consummation of the kingdom of the Christ that happens in the book of Revelation. And if you were to take Jesus' perfect life, his miracles, the raising of the dead, the feeding of the 5,000, the calming the winds and the waves, the uh, healing of the blind, the healing of the lame, uh, you have Jesus' life on display from a human perspective. But what would heaven say about Jesus? You only have the response of heaven in a few spots in your New Testament until you get to the book of Revelation. You have the baptism of Christ, where the heavens roll back, the spirit comes down like a dove, and there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. A divine commendation. You have the transfiguration where Jesus is transfigured in front of Peter, James, and John, and you have a similar statement from heaven that says, this is my son, listen to him. And then you move to the cross, and the last three hours of the cross, we as humans don't get to look into. There's very little written about the last three hours of the cross. It's as if our whole Bible goes dark until the resurrection, and you have the proclamation and preaching of Jesus being risen from the dead. But in Revelation chapter five, you get heaven's perspective on what Jesus has done. Would you agree that a world religion is only a good world religion if God approves of it? You with me? That it, it really doesn't matter what man thinks about God. 
It really doesn't ultimately matter what I think about Jesus, except for my own personal relationship with God, but it matters a whole lot what God says about Jesus. Would you agree? And Revelation chapter five is what God thinks about Jesus. This text is perhaps the most emotional text in your Bible. I think it contains the saddest verse in your entire Bible. That where John in Revelation chapter four basically just stands there with a notepad and writes down, well, it's kind of like four faces and animals, got it, okay, and there's lots of glory and an emerald rainbow, green rainbows, got that? Uh, Lots of stones, lots of brilliance, lots of light, got it. Where he was a recorder and a reporter in Revelation chapter four, John is drawn into the drama of redemption in Revelation chapter five. This text is a full-scale emotional assault. I hope I can make it through this text. Uh, Back in 2012, I I told the staff team this morning, I think this is the last movie Suzanne and I saw in the theaters uh, in 2012. Uh, And it was Les Mis. And if you remember Les Mis, Les Mis has uh, Wolverine in it. Uh, It's got... um, uh, what, Anne Hathaway, whose uh, who's other work, uh, I can just think of the Ella Enchanted. That's the, where she wanders around singing songs. Uh, I think that's her in that. Uh, and it had Russell Crowe, who you didn't know could sing, and then you found out he can't sing. He just like, he just like you know, talks loudly over music. Uh, we got tickets to Les Mis, and uh, we got the last couple of tickets to Les Mis, which means when you get the tickets for Les Mis, you walk into the theater and you gotta sit like where my brother is here, right down front. Like you gotta sit and the screen is like this and your seats recline. And if you've seen Les Mis, you know Les Mis opens and it hits an emotional nine and doesn't stop until the end. That's what that movie is like. And we left, and I'm wiping tears out of my eyes, trying to catch my breath. I'm feeling emotionally spent and exhausted as we leave the theater because the emotional intensity of that movie carries with you the whole time, and it just drags you along from death to life to pain to sorrow to excitement to freedom. That's Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5 is meant for you to experience it in your heart. It's meant for you to feel it. Okay? Let's get into it. Let's pray. Oh, let me give you the outline. Here's the outline. You type A. So you're like, he didn't give an outline. Uh, here's how this, this, here's your outline. You, it's real easy. The whole text just unfolds right in front of you. You're going to have the scroll. You're going to have a search. You're going to have sorrow you're going to have a savior, and you're going to have the songs. Okay, one more time. The scroll, the search, the sorrow, the savior, and the songs. You with me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, for these few minutes that we look into your word, we pray that we would walk out of here with a new appreciation for what you have done for us. Father, we stand in awe of the stories of individuals who have put their faith in you, a testimony to what you and you alone have done to call men and women to yourself. And for that, we give thanks. Father in heaven, may we get a picture this morning of what heaven thinks of the Lamb. Would we reorient our own theology around what we see in this text, and may you make us more worshipful, more thankful, more joyful people as a result of this text. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, As you teach the book of Revelation, you're always cross-referencing. So I'm going to mention a couple places that we're just frankly not going to have time to turn to. There are major theological ideas in this text that that you can spend time reading uh, outside of our time here together, but I want to primarily stay 
here in uh, Revelation chapter 5 so that you can get the sense of how this text works and how it unfolds with us. You're going to see some major uh, Old Testament Jewish ideas. Uh, you're going to see just some major pieces here that help you tie all of the strings of the book of Revelation together uh, throughout your Bible into one beautiful bow. All right? Take a look at Revelation 5 verse 1. Y'all there? Revelation 5 verse 1. Then I saw. This is uh, again, John is drawn and pulled into heaven in Revelation chapter 4, and this phrase helps to kind of give you movement in the, in the book and in John's recounting of what happens here in Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. We haven't mentioned the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne up to this point. Uh, it wasn't drawn out in Revelation chapter 4, but in Revelation chapter 5, there it is. There's the mention of the right hand of God. The right hand of God uh, is mentioned in the Psalms. It's mentioned really throughout a lot of the Old Testament, and it has to do with God's power. Uh, it, the place that's mentioned most often is in uh, Exodus 15. Exodus 15 is the other side of the Red Sea experience. It's called the Song of Moses. You actually see the Song of Moses sung again in this book in Revelation chapter 15. And in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, you have Moses writing down and recounting what for the Old Testament is the premier act of God's sovereignty and power in saving his people. All through the Old Testament, they look back to this moment when they were freed from their captors. It becomes the standard by which all other God of God's activity is evaluated. They continually return to this moment. And three different times in the Song of Moses is mentioned the right hand of God. That the right hand of God in the Psalm says is, uh, he, um, the right hand of God does valiantly. Uh, at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. The right hand of God is filled with righteousness, the Psalms say. So from the beginning of this chapter, Revelation chapter 5 begins with the absolute power of God. That God, is, God the Father is worthy. The one who sits on the throne is worthy in Revelation chapter 4. But we're drawn in, in our perspective, to a particular attribute of God the Father. That he has authority and power to do anything and everything he desires. He has complete what, uh, what the scriptures call omnipotence. Omni-all potence power. All power rests in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. And in his right hand is a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. It's probably that the, uh, it's, the Greek says on the hand. So it's probably as if the scroll sits here in the hand of God the Father. Palm open. And this scroll uh, is a unique one. Scrolls in your Bible are typically attributed to things like, uh, things of great importance, Ezekiel chapter 2 talks about a scroll that is given from God and Ezekiel eats, written uh, like, much like this scroll on the back and on the front, on both sides, which means it's full uh, of information. The scroll here, sealed with seven seals, makes it a scroll of divine importance, ultimate importance, if you will. You would have a scroll like this in the ancient Near East that would attribute uh, things to a last will and testament, that it would be sealed by witnesses. It's a divine seal like a power of attorney, that nobody has the right and the authority to open this scroll except for the one to whom it is addressed. So this scroll is of ultimate divine importance. It probably is the deed to the universe. It's the right and the authority and the power to judge and to bring the purposes of God to completion, to its end. And there it sits, in the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. So there's the scroll. Let's look at the search in verse two. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Now, have there been some noise in heaven up to this point? That the four living creatures are singing and praising God, that the elders around the throne are singing and praising God? And now here comes this angel with a loud voice, and he's heard all through the corners of heaven and beyond the corners of heaven into creation, 
into really from all heaven and all creation. Watch what it says. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is, there's that word, worthy. You know, remember we said what worthy was? Worthy is a, it's a marketplace term that when you weigh things in the market, it's A-X-I-O-S, axios, is where we get axis from. So that as you would get a certain amount of grain or wheat or barley or whatever, it would be weighed with weights that were a good standard. It would be called fitting. It's appropriate that this much weighs this much. It's only mentioned one time in Revelation chapter 4. It's mentioned five times in this chapter that we are about to ask and answer perhaps the most important question in all of your Bible. Who is worthy? In fact, here's what the angel says. He's proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? The seals, as we'll see in Revelation chapter 6, will be opened. It's probably, the commentators go two ways on this, where the... Where the um, our band has gone all digital, so there's no physical paper up here for this illustration. It's probably that the scroll uh, is not this way, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, but it's sequentially, and the, and the seals are inside. So that as you open the scroll, there's a sequential revelation of the information that's on the inside. That's where I think it is, personally. If I'm wrong, you can tell me when I get to heaven. That's okay. I'm okay being wrong. I've only been wrong like twice this year. It's no big deal. Not a big thing. Uh, let's see. Who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? It's interesting that the angel asks this question because we were just introduced to the power of God in the right hand. And the question is not who is strong enough. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that the question you would think? Who is strong enough to take the scroll from the right hand of the one who is completely omnipotent? But that's not the question. The question is asked who is worthy who has met the qualifications? Who has the right to bring the story to its end? Look at verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. What up to this point has been loud in heaven? raucous praise and worship. And what has been up to this point, the loud question of an angel, ends at this spot. There's no apostle that can open the scroll. There's no great kings of old who can open the scroll. There's no Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are worthy to open the scroll. There's no business leader, there's no politician, there's no individual with multiple PhDs. Your grandma can't open the scroll. But the power to bring about the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan is not found on earth. It's, a tr it's what's called a tripartite division of creation, heaven, earth, under the earth. The, goal, the point is not that you know, we're digging around under the earth to find out who are the dead guys who can do this. The point is that there's nobody found anywhere. Remember the distinction up to this point in Revelation chapter 4 was between the holy, holy, holy one who sits on the throne and by your will they existed. Divinity, creation. That's the distinction. And the distinction here from the angel is that thou, now there is no one found who is able to complete the purposes of God and to unfold the scroll, leading to the fulfillment of all of the promises and all of the resolution of all of what the Bible says about God and his purposes. Verse four, here's the sorrow. This is the saddest verse in your Bible right here. And I began to weep. You know that word, that word weep? Um, it's used of Peter after he betrays Christ and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. It's used of Jesus when he looks over the city of Jerusalem as he comes down the, um, the path and he, he weeps over Jerusalem. 
that they will not receive him. It's a bitter weeping. Think about the people in the scriptures who have wept. I did just a, a quick study. Nehemiah weeps over the state of Jerusalem. The gates are burned with fire and the walls are turned down or torn down. Hagar lays her son down under a bush in Genesis and goes off a long way from him to weep so that she would not have to watch him die. Hannah, in the book of 1 Samuel, weeps at her barrenness. That this verse uh, is not a, a it, this is not a sorrow of loss or a sorrow of pain necessarily or a sorrow of suffering even. This is a sorrow to which all other biblical sorrows point. This is the headwater of every sorrow that you experience in your life, of every difficult moment, of every place in your life that causes you to weeping, finds its source right here in this question, in what John experiences. John is drawn into the drama of this moment because what he is confronted with is the complete impotence of creation. This is a sorrow of hopelessness. that nothing can fulfill no man, no woman, no created thing can bring to fulfillment the plan of God. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. You see three times in three verses. You see what it was? Open the scroll, open the scroll, open the scroll. And the utter inability of anything in all creation to do that causes John to weep. He comes to the end of himself. He is completely and utterly hopeless. Let's look at the Savior. And one of the elders said to me, if the elders in this text are the raptured and glorified church, then the church has an answer for the divine, hopeless situation of all creation. Amen? That the church knows something that someone in all creation does not know. The church knows that there's someone outside of all creation who came to fix this thing. You ever feel like you watch the news or you watch the report or you watch the whatever and you go, oh, how long? This, in contrast, is the happiest verse in your Bible. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Weep no more. Behold. Now watch this. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll. And it's seven seals. John gets two Old Testament prophecies, one from Genesis 49 and one from Isaiah 11, that perhaps are the two most powerful images of the one who is to come and has the authority to open the scrolls. The first is the lion. The lion is a prophecy that Jacob gives at the end of his life to his 12 sons one of whom being Judah. And he says, Judah is a lion's cub. And in the prophecy in Genesis 49, it says that the lion cub goes down, eats the prey, eats it up. He's got no opposition whatsoever. The lion is the king of the beasts. He has to he's the top of the food chain. But there's one coming who is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then as you move forward in your Bible... You move forward from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, right? And in 1st Samuel, we're introduced to the family of Jesse. And Jesse has seven sons, and the runt of the litter is a man named David. And David is given a promise in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 that one from your line will rule my people. And it's prophesied over in Isaiah chapter 11. After you get the early virgin-born prophecies of Isaiah 7, 8, and 9, you get to Isaiah chapter 11, and it says a root 
There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. You have the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the top of the food chain, is completely powerful. And you have the son of David, the, uh, the root of David has conquered. You have royalty. You have power and royalty put together in a single individual. And this one has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. Now the question is, conquered has been used throughout all of the letters to the churches. And in fact, it was uh, given by Jesus in the very last church, the church at Laodicea that we looked at back in like 84. Remember that? Last year. He said, I have conquered and, sa- and I will grant to him who conquers to sit down with me on my throne as I have conquered. Now, what does it mean for the lion who is at the top of the food chain and the royal fulfillment of David's promise to be the Davidic king? What does it look like for him to conquer? That's the question. Now you're drawn into the divine drama here as you lean forward and wonder, what is it? Who has the authority and the power, the one who has conquered? Take a look at verse 6. What do you expect to see? Don't look at it. Is it on the screen? It's not yet. Not yet on the screen. What do you think you're going to see? I think you're going to see a king. I think you're going to see a lion. 5 verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. Standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns. You know what? Horns in your Bible represent power. He has ultimate omnipotence. Not only that, the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God set out into all the earth, he has ultimate insight. Isn't it important that Jesus' judgment is not random? It's perfectly appropriate because he has all power and all insight to judge. Now, this lamb standing as slain, that word slain is not used anywhere else in your Bible except one place outside the book of Revelation. It's used in 1 John 3 about how Cain murdered his brother Abel. Jesus didn't come, live to 100, and then die in his sleep. Jesus came and died a martyr's death. That he was murdered. You know what the difference is between murder and manslaughter? Premeditation. That they desired and wanted and had an agenda to put this one to death. And here is this lamb standing as if slain. Why a lamb? This is how John introduces Jesus in the book of John. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here is this lamb standing as if slain. What does that mean for our understanding of God and how he chooses to conquer. It means that God can conquer through weakness. God can do the greatest and mightiest of things with the absolute weakest things. Isn't that true? Isn't that what we believe? That omnipotence divested himself and became like us and stepped into humanity like us, who experienced what we experienced and then died a death that we deserved. And here he is standing as if slain. Now from this point on, the text moves quick because where this text moves from this point is to songs. Look at verse seven. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. That is no small verse in your Bible. We have just shown you that there is nobody in all creation who has the ability to go and to take the scroll except this one who is the lamb who is standing as if slain. You know, Daniel uh, shows you this. Keep your finger there in Revelation. Turn back to your left. Kind of if you can find Psalms right about in the middle of your Bible, then keep going to your right. You'll hit Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, then you'll hit Daniel. Daniel gets an image of this in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5, you have a picture of those things interacting with the sinfulness of the world in Daniel chapter 7. Look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. This is Revelation 4. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. 
His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Don't worry about it. We'll look at it in a couple weeks. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The ultimate, go back to Revelation, the ultimate fulfillment of the ruling and reigning Christ begins right here. Revelation 5, verse 7. If you want to spend time reading about this in other places in your Old Testament, you can go to Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Those are both psalms that are what it's called purely prophetic psalms. Some psalms are typico prophetic, which means that we can see an image of them in the life of David, and they ultimately point to the person and work of Jesus. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, the two most often quoted psalms in your New Testament, are purely prophetic psalms. It's an image behind, it's the divinity behind the word of God. Where Psalm 2 talks about doing homage to the son because God has installed his king on Mount Zion. Psalm 110 is the glory of the son ruling, reigning, and conquering. And it begins right here. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Prayers of the saints are interesting in the book of Revelation. They're prayers for judgment primarily. The prayers of Revelation chapter 8 preclude the trumpet judgments that happen in chapter 8 and chapter 9 that the bowls of incense are thrown down as one of the bowls in the bowl judgments upon the earth and it creates fire on the earth. The souls that are martyred and killed in Revelation chapter 6 cry out to God, God, how long is it until you avenge our blood on the earth? That the prayers in the book of Revelation are for final and ultimate judgment. God, you must judge. You must bring this thing to a close. You must hold account for sin. Christians, uh, the Bible talks about um, justice, and the wicked man does not understand judgment. But those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Christians understand that for there to be true love of God for us, God has also has to hate sin. And you get no better treatment of God's hatred of sin than the book of Revelation. The only one better is the crucifixion. Because what is about to happen in the book of Revelation is God's judgment on sin is about to be poured out on the earth. Verse 9, and they sang a new song. You know what? Uh, This is great. Uh, new song, this idea is throughout your Old Testament, and it's, uh, new songs are sung as a response to new mercies of God, to where God does something that we only, uh, all we can do is give thanks for what he has done. God's intervention in life and in struggle and in suffering and in difficulty are characterized by this idea of a new song. And new doesn't mean uh, it's not Uh, time-based. It's not temporal. Like we woke up this morning and it was a brand new day, right? The new word is what we heard Kate say up there. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. It means completely different. It's what Christ says in this book. Behold, I'm making all things new. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And you have this single, the only spot in this chapter that gives you an explanation is that word for in verse 9. It explains and preaches to you and teaches to you the images that John has just seen. 
He hears that there is a lion of the tribe of Judah, the right uh, heir of the coming Davidic king. He sees a lamb standing as if slain with perfect power and perfect insight, and now the whole of heaven begins to resound. Where there was only silence and defeat and weakness and impotence, now all of heaven turns and looks at the one who is worthy. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, you were murdered, And by your blood, watch what the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ did. By your blood, you ransomed people for God. The the verb is to purchase. It means to take out of the market. That his blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Would you agree that that value is determined by the cost? You with me? That the cost of redemption of every single individual made in the image of God as a result of what Jesus has done from every, uh, let me go back to it, what is it? Every tribe, that means every group, every language, every people, Literally, ethnos. It's where we get the word ethnic. Every ethnic division and every nation, there are people ransomed because of what Christ has done. Verse 10, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. What John just said is that when Christ saves us, he saves us for a purpose. He saves us for something. You see that? He saves us and ransoms us and brings us into the family of God. And he now calls us two things, a kingdom and priest, that we are under new rule and new authority, and we now have a new service and responsibility. That's why a Christian that serves no one and makes their life primarily about themselves has forgotten their fundamental first identity of what happened because of Jesus' blood. That we are under new authority and have new responsibilities. That we are called to serve God. That's why when we baptize, we don't just hold you over and send you to Jesus. Because we believe that God's got a purpose for your life. We believe that Jesus has saved you, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and now has prepared works for you to walk in beforehand that you might live your life in service to God, priests to God, serving the purposes of God. Guess what? In every nation, in every tribe, in every language, in every tongue, wherever there are people, you have the responsibility, what did I say? Under new authority and new responsibilities. That church is to be a little police of heaven on earth. And you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. This has been the promise all throughout the letters to the churches. This is the promise here from heaven itself that promises the reigning of Christians upon the earth. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Myriads is a word in the Greek. The Greeks just got to like 10,000 and just stopped counting. They kind of went, ah, oh, it's a whole bunch. It's a mess of angels. We have, I have a daughter who uh, uh, she would try to um, account for a massive number, and she would call it a whole junk of, J-U-N-K. And she'd go, oh, it's a whole junk of cars. And we use that in our home to just capture like just a massive amount of numbers. But the same idea is there in Daniel chapter 7. Myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. The angelic choir and chorus of God's heavenly host now begin to join. Do you see that? Do you see the drama that is being played out before John? John is invited into the demand that the scroll puts forth creation to finally and ultimately fulfill the plans of God. John is humbled and silent that nobody can come and take the scroll. John weeps at the weakness of God's purposes being fulfilled. John is comforted, 
comforted and brought solace by the elders and the glorified church who says, behold, look at the lamb. And then what begins to resonate from the throne itself, from the living creatures to the elders, now to the angels themselves, are songs and songs and songs and songs that begin to build Where there was silence and failure and impotence, now there is power and strength and joy and thanksgiving. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing." A sevenfold blessing song. Verse 13, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Do you see where it goes? Did you see how this text is bracketed by all of creation? All of creation being weak, all of creation giving praise to God for who He is and what He has done in the Lamb. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. How do you close this chapter? That's the best way to close this chapter, right? Amen. Amen. Right? All the, all the angels, all the four living creatures go, they're right. Amen. We agree. So be it. It is true. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Whew, man, do you feel the emotional roller coaster of this passage? the silence and the sorrow and the Savior in the songs. You know, I don't know what you think of Jesus. Maybe you look at Jesus and you go, boy, he's an interesting character. He did some pretty neat things. He's pretty interesting to listen to. He did some miracles but he's probably not God. He's just a great teacher. And let me ask, have you been, have you felt this story in your heart? Have you understood that when you look at the standards of God, you know, a lot of us um, spend our lives focused on ourselves. And the interesting thing about Revelation chapter 5 is that Revelation chapter 5 orients all of creation around the person and work of Jesus Christ. That where every, in everything uh, Revelation 4 said, everything in Revelation 4 gains its meaning, purpose, and design as a result of the throne. Everything in Revelation chapter 5 gains its meaning, purpose, design, authority, and responsibilities because of the Lamb. See, a lot of us spend our life thinking about us where our song is really just me. It's me, 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 not them, it's me, not Jesus, me. Me, me, me. And we think about our purpose, our design, our desires, our ambitions, our dreams, our marriage, our kids, our parenting, our money, our goals, our all the time. But when you're confronted not with your standards, but with the standards of God, all you can do, the scriptures say, is lay your hand over your mouth. When we understand, in all honesty, that we cannot solve the deepest, darkest, most broken areas of our life, then you have a taste of what Revelation 5 is about. Where the longings in your heart are met with only weakness. When the desires that you have in your life to be different are ultimately met with the fact that you are not strong enough to bring about the change that you want to see in your life. And Christians, we've been there, right? We remember those moments of weakness where go, God, I can't become who I want to be. God, I can't be who you call me to be. God, I have no hope 
to bring about the change that I so long to see in myself or long to see in others. And that is a deep, deep sorrow. That's what this text points to. But this text points to the one. The one in whom we say, behold. The one who died for me. The one who has perfect knowledge of who I am. Who has every right to judge me. And did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for me. That's why only Jesus has the power to reorient your life. Only Jesus has the power to reorient the songs that you sing in your heart that leave you so focused on yourself and how broken things are. It's only Jesus who has the power to turn your eyes away from yourself and your impotence and your hopelessness and to fill you with the hope of the fact that he loves you that he died for you, that he's got a purpose and a design for your life, that you can be used by him on this planet to bring glory to him, to the only one who is worthy. Because we as a church, listen, we're not worthy, right? I'm not worthy. I don't have the authority to bring about the ultimate fulfillment of God's purposes on this planet, but I know someone who is. Because that's why we sing, right? That's why we come and we gather and we look away from ourselves and from our weak and from our weakness and our impotence to the one who is ultimately strong, to the one who has ransomed and paid the price for me. That's why we sing at baptism, right? Because he's given new life that we couldn't do on our own. And this is the promise of the gospel message for the church. This is the promise that we have the honor of being able to speak about to our kids and our family and our neighbors and our, our, um, the students in our dorm and, the, and our coworkers and friends and all of that. That we have a new song because of what Christ has done. So the issue for you is not what you think about Jesus. I mean, that's a big one. But the reason we preach and teach Jesus is because of what God thinks about Jesus. Here's what Jesus says about himself in John chapter five, and we'll close here. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son of man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. You see, in Jesus's life, he doesn't bring strength to God. He brings willingness to God. It's written, the Hebrews uses this from Psalm 40. It says, uh, in sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you've prepared for me. Behold, it is written to me in the scroll of, bo of the book, I have come to do your will. And what Jesus does during his time on earth is completely obey the Father. He says, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. That's what he's saying here. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. If you believe that Jesus is who God says he is, you move from hopelessness to hope. You move from death to life. You move from a slave in the market to ransomed to serve him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If that's brand new to you, would you let us know? Because we as a church want to tell you that there is hope today because of what Jesus has done for us. That we look away from ourselves, our own ability, our, 
supposed obedience and self-justification, and we look to the fact that Jesus alone has died on the cross to heal what I could not heal, to make us a kingdom and priests to our God. And that's our goal here, is that we would lift up the name of Christ, that we would preach the name of Christ, that Jesus would be the central theme of our song at Citadel Square, amen? and that we would offer hope to our family, neighbors, this city, and beyond. Father in heaven, the truth of this text is all too clear. Who you have declared Jesus to be is our only hope. So Father, for those in this room, we pray that they would come to a point of agreement in the things that we have said here this morning that they would turn from their sin, that they would repent of the ways in which they have failed to honor you, and that they would look to the Son, that they would look to the Lamb standing as if slain for their only hope of justification and righteousness before you. Father, we come as a dependent people, reminded of the fact that there was a one point where we had, uh, as Ephesians says, we were at one time without God and without hope in the world. But now because of what Jesus has done and that Jesus has come, we have a brand new song. May the songs of our life represent a thank you to you. A thank you to the one who is alone is worthy to bring history to its conclusion. So Father, remind us, change us, Give us a new song in our mouth this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.